PlusCast, the podcast about science, academia, and the future of scholarship. I'm Sarah Kasabian, filling in for our usual host, Elizabeth Seaver. Our guest today is Jessica Polka. She's known for her work as director of ASAP Bio and also as a leading advocate for preprints and early career researchers. I'm Jessica Polka, director of ASAP Bio. And I'm Sarah Kasabian, filling in for Elizabeth Seaver this week because she is at the peer review conference. So Jessica kindly flew out from Chicago to attend our SF Open Drinks Night and talk about ASAP Bio and more about preprints. So welcome. Very excited to be here. Great. So I was going to ask you how it feels to be back in San Francisco. We already (laughs) had that conversation. (laughs) No, it's amazing. It feels great. I feel like we're, it's um, just to kind of set the scene here, the sky is like this totally amorphous gray color and there's just mist coming down, uh, which yeah. is exactly as I remember like exactly. my six years here yes. in grad school, five years in grad school. So, Well, so. yeah, it's definitely not a sunny day, so yeah. that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. It's definitely a typical Carl the Fog day. Yeah. yeah. So my first question What brought you out to San Francisco? Was it just to attend our open drinks meetup, or are you here for another reason? So I'm here for a National Academies Committee meeting. It's the Next Generation Researchers Initiative. The committee is tasked with trying to understand how the independent careers of researchers can be launched. In other words, how to support early career researchers in their transition to independence, whether that's in academia or industry. So I've been really passionate about postdoc issues throughout my, uh, you know, research career. And so it's an honor to serve on this committee. And we're actually meeting together with this graduate education committee at the same time to talk about biology graduate education. Yeah, there's an open session tomorrow in case you're interested. Yeah, yeah. no, that's really cool. That's awesome. We, uh, part of my job at PLUS and part of the reason I was so excited to interview you is I manage our early career researchers community. That's great. So we're always looking for new outlets and new ideas. And I really want to talk to you about your postdoc advocacy. So that really kind of brings me into my curiosity about the origin story of ASAP Bio. Like you saw a need and decided to fill it like... Yeah, well, so um, I guess ASAP Bio really started with our founder, Ron Vale, who in 2015 had done a study of the publishing and graduation and and, uh, kind of the the habits of UCSF grad students. Mm. Uh, And also he looked at the the way that publishing has changed over the last 30 years in concert with these changes in graduate education in the program. Mm. So what he found was that over this period, this article has been published in, in BioArchive and PNAS, by the way, um, there's been a significant increase in the number of panels that are required to publish a paper. So now mm-hmm. it's not just that you know, we, we have more technology in order to collect data, but it's also that more types of data are required in order to kind of publish a paper. Um, and at the same time, graduate students are taking longer to put their first author paper together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that is kind of speaking to, you could speculate a lot about why this is, but, I, but personally I, I see a connection here between the fact that we are um, so much evaluated based upon where we publish. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, um, I think we're basically holding on to our research results for a long time before releasing them. So Ron, recognizing this problem, um, recruited myself, Daniel Colin Ramos, and also Harold Varmus. We were mm-hmm. at the time all serving on this Rescuing Biomedical Research Committee, which was 
established by uh, kind of four luminaries in the field who were concerned about the directions of the biomedical research workforce and and funding Mm -hmm. and training are, are moving down. So um, Ron uh, basically proposed the idea of holding a meeting to talk about what could be done. Uh, in his paper, he proposed preprints as one solution. They mm-hmm. are widely used in physics and other fields. Mm-hmm. I had had a fantastic experience posting preprints, actually, that uh, as well. So for me, it, it seemed kind of like a, a no-brainer. This was an intervention that was plausible and, mm-hmm. and could be a good thing. So from there, we received a great response at this meeting, which was at HHMI in early in 2016, and um, have been kind of working to follow up with that energy and, and try to promote um, movement toward a positive direction. That's awesome. So how did it feel as a young researcher to be working alongside uh, Harold Varmus and other (laughs) luminaries in the field? I mean, I think about PLUS and we have a conference room named after him. He's one of our founders and such a leader in the open access community. So when you were recruited onto this team, like how did you, did you feel any like imposter syndrome (laughs) that I know so many people that like myself included deal with like how did you kind of overcome that wow yeah I mean I think I probably still feel imposter syndrome so I don't know I don't feel like I don't have any really useful tips except maybe just you know a continued um exposure it's been it's been like a great uh experience to kind of get to talk to people at so many different career stages and Mm -hmm. and from so many different perspectives um that I think really fundamentally everybody cares about this question of how we publish and how we communicate, um, but you know, it just have different perspectives on it based upon where they are and where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Do you think that early career researchers are really sort of at the forefront of these new innovations in publishing, particularly around preprints and things like that? In some ways, I think that uh, early career researchers uh, have this kind of vision for being able to see things differently. And mm-hmm. I think obviously we have a lot of energy and, and um, you know, the potential to change things. But in a lot of ways, early career researchers are also the most vulnerable in the sense that we mm-hmm. really need these publications in order to graduate, in order to get fellowships, in order to get a job, in order to, to get a grant. And in mm-hmm. a way that maybe someone who's tenured um, you know, and an mm-hmm. HHMI investigator probably is less, you know, immediately concerned with that next publication. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, I think um, early career researchers are really in this bind where we are kind of forced to play by the rules of a game, even if we might want to change that, that game. Um, mm-hmm. We've got to figure out how to navigate in this, the existing, the real world, as well as we're, you know, trying to imagine something else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, have you talked since you? I I've met you at OpenCon uh, last year, and I know that you're at so many different conferences and things like that. How is this a sentiment that you feel like is really shared by ECRs? And do they ask you for advice on how to talk to their PI and have maybe an interventions of sorts about the importance <laughs> yeah. of open access and other innovations and where they publish. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think first of all, it's, it's really great to be able to go to places like OpenCon. I think also to be on Twitter, which is this really this mm-hmm. skewing very heavily toward people who see this vision for the world as, as something that is, um, you know, open access and, and freely available and really kind of challenging some of the norms. Mm-hmm. I think, um, the reality is that in many different environments, preprinting, you know, open access is 
much more of a, uh, a radical idea than I think it should be. In other words, mm-hmm. that I think that Twitter is totally a bubble um, that, you know, and of course, going to OpenCon, being among oh, advocates, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Like, you know, it was open access was yeah. abbreviated. It's open. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think there's, um, you know, first of all, I think that, that there is less awareness than that there really could be. But to the question of how, how can how can an early career researcher make the case to their PI or their collaborators that mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, I mean, it's challenging. Like, I, you know, completely acknowledge that. Um, I think that they are, you know, absolutely helped by the fact that there are a lot of people, senior allies, who, you know, are their, their own PI's colleagues who mm-hmm. share these views. And I think kind of exposing that to um, those PIs that are a little bit more hesitant is one way to make a step forward. Furthermore, it, it's also really helpful that there's a lot of formal recognition of preprinting now. So um, earlier this year, the NIH released a policy encouraging the use of preprints. Mm-hmm. Lots of different funders have formal policies similar to this now. Um, a lot of journals are also becoming, you know, more willing to really fully embrace preprints. Mm-hmm. So these kind of formal changes, I think. Um, if early career researchers can kind of educate themselves on these, they will be armed with a little bit more ammunition to have those difficult conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it seems like being able to talk to your PI about these kind of things, about changing the, the old way, I yeah. guess, <laughs> of t- turning traditional publishing on its head and the traditional approach, like one of the main issues that I hear about is concerns about being scooped. Oh, and yeah. I think about biology, like the field, I mean, developing a mouse model takes a lot, a lot of time, and there's all these biotechnology concerns. Mm -hmm. So how do you respond to people who say, well, if I post a preprint, how do I know that my work isn't going to be scooped by a different lab or a competing research team? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that um, I understand things work in physics, where preprinting is much more commonplace. In talking with Paul Ginsberg, who founded the archive, um, you know, he has basically written like, you can't be scooped because archive is the place where someone scooping you would try to put their, co- in other words, that is where mm-hmm. all the eyeballs are going. So mm-hmm. I, I think the fear is that, um, that when we talk about scooping, we mean someone else benefiting from our work in a way that allows them to gain more visibility and to kind of, and whether that is publishing in a, a journal um, that is of higher visibility than the one that we publish in, which is something mm-hmm. that unfortunately I think happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's anecdotes about people presenting posters at meetings or of sending manuscripts for review yes. and having mm-hmm. ideas that sort of migrate out of out of those uh, papers and into others. Um, I think that, however, there is concern about scooping from preprints now, especially because they are really still. Um, in they're growing explosively, but are still relatively speaking in their infancy in the life sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, but frankly, I have not heard of a good example of someone actually being scooped from a preprint. So, mm-hmm. if there's any listeners out there with the this you know experience, please let me know because I think it's something that is a very common fear, but probably a very uncommon occurrence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I can I can understand yeah. that. I mean, it seems like posting your work as a preprint, like you're kind of putting, I mean, you're putting your name on it. Yeah. Like you're saying, hey, this is my idea. It seems like it's important to get the literature out there as quickly as possible. So it's a benefit to 
um, science and the scientific enterprise. That's exactly what it's all about. It is. I think it's really just about accelerating the whole process of of making work available, letting the community mm-hmm. see it, read it, and, and mm-hmm. as you say, just accelerate science. So yeah, that's the goal, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so of course, it's impossible to talk about preprints without also talking about the peer review process. And you come to us from the Windy City, having just attended the peer review congress yes. conference. So. Considering all of this and the fact that you've been inundated in this discussion for the past how long? It was like three days. Three days? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah that's a pretty yeah. pretty standard yeah. conference fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think peer review is going to be more or less important to preprints and to the conversation around preprints moving forward? It's a great question because so much of the goal of preprinting is not only to make your work more visible to other people, but mm-hmm. also to get more feedback on it so that you can improve it ahead of time. Right? Absolutely. So I think taking a, a kind of broad view of the notion of peer review as critical, helpful commentary from the community, mm-hmm. I think we're already kind of seeing that happen to some extent with, with preprints in the sense that Comments on preprints can appear on the preprint website, although there is still a relatively low rate of comment posting relative to the number of preprints out there. I think we have some stigma as a community against critical uh, feedback of one another in in public spaces, um, given that our review process has been so um, obscure. I think it Mm kind of makes sense that maybe we have this expectation that this type of discussion needs to happen privately. But I, anecdotally, I do hear a lot of stories of people getting helpful feedback, mm-hmm. either through email, privately, which is, yeah, so I think there's an underrepresentation of the total amount of feedback on the commenting sections of, of preprint servers. I think also there's, uh, I, I asked Twitter <laughs> earlier, you know, tell me about your stories of getting feedback on, on preprints. And um, I think that the other thing that really kind of um, that hit, drove home was that this feedback is coming through so many different channels. It's coming through... Facebook. Um, it's coming through either there's also these kind of sites that are offering more formal kind of peer review or more formal sort mm-hmm. of um, uh, discussion of, of preprinting. Um, things like Peer Community In or Academic Karma or Science Open. or mm-hmm. So I, I think that, that um, there is a huge amount of potential for um, preprints and the feedback on preprints to kind of act as a way to provide uh, great feedback to to authors as they're improving their work. Um, I think that also preprints themselves can really act as a form of feedback. Um, mm-hmm. For example, there's this uh, paper that just came out by Craig Ventner about identifying individuals mm-hmm. based upon mm-hmm. their uh, machine learning of their, their genomes. Uh, and there's been a really spirited discussion of a couple of preprints firing back and forth, um, each critical of the last one on that. So they, they are sort of, mm-hmm. they're in, you know, in addition to commenting on preprints, the preprints themselves are sort of a useful form of, of commentary. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I really, I'm so glad that you mentioned social media. Oh, yeah. I That's my job at Plus. So everyone, if you're tweeting at Plus, you're tweeting at me, Sarah. Um, <laughs> wow. I see everything. <laughs> and so I, I um, but yeah, absolutely. I think about even if you like take the science out of it for a second and think about a newspaper reporter or something like that, there's all these comments that accumulate and sometimes story ideas come through 
feedback on certain articles and things like that. I mean, I hope that we'll get feedback from listeners and this will take us down the road of another, um, like another door will open for a future podcast on some of these topics. Mm-hmm. So I guess like coming back to my question, yeah. um, when do you think that eventually the process will open up even more? So it will be not just email, not just preprint comments, but really like science will just open up to the point where there's all sorts of different ideas and sometimes it could be a tweet that sends <laughs> that starts your next research question and leads to a new hypothesis. Who knows? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's true now in the sense that there is so much discussion on blogs and social media and really at meetings. I mean, scientific meetings have been sort of this very informal way for researchers to communicate with one another. So mm-hmm. in some ways, I think that there, all of our ideas are coming from lots of different places. Like it's not mm-hmm. there. I think there was never a point when all of our ideas were coming only from papers. Right. It's just that now we're moving into this this technological space where one could actually envision cataloging and finding and making all that work actually discoverable mm-hmm. in a more meaningful way. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I could imagine um, uh, a lot of different kind of future innovations to enrich our, our ability to comment and mm-hmm. have thoughtful discussions on, on various types of research products. I mean, I think preprints are, are awesome, but really thinking about the, the day-to-day work of a researcher, putting together a manuscript is a relatively rare occurrence. We're generating all kinds of data. We're mm-hmm. making presentations for group meetings. We're making posters. We're putting together figures. So I feel like all of these research products um, could potentially become part of a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another example would be Reddit Science. I mean, there's so much conversation and dialogue that happens on that forum. Uh, Some of it useful, a lot of it useful. A lot of the people that are on there are actual scientists and they they have a lot to say and they want to learn about other scientific disciplines. So I agree with you. The future is bright and open, for sure. <laughs> so does, does PLOS do Reddit? Yes, yeah. so every Wednesday at oh. 10 a.m. Pacific time, you can log on to Reddit Science, and there will be an Ask Me Anything session, an oh, AMA, cool. with one of our authors. And so we try and spotlight different research and sort of prolong the life cycle of the research by giving the authors the chance to answer people's questions. Uh, today's AMA was on sugar addiction, and wow. it was super interesting. There, I learned a lot about sugar and the neural pathways which that promote the addictive properties of of sugar which anyone who's like experienced halloween with a child (laughs) can definitely uh definitely attest to so that's just an example off the top of my head of one forum where you can get useful feedback anyway moving along Mm. oh one more question for you related to this conference did you hear anything really specifically related to peer review and preprints while attending the conference Seemed like there was some spirited discussion on Twitter. There was really great work from John Ioannidis' group concerning the social media attention to papers that had appeared on BioArchive uh, mm. versus matched controls that had not appeared on BioArchive. And they found a advantage for um, posting wow. on, on BioArchive before, mm-hmm. um, which I think you know speaks to the fact that preprinting is really a way of getting additional attention and feedback on, on papers. That said, I think that as there's so much enthusiasm on Twitter for preprints, I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, I'm curious to know more about um, whether the average preprint author 
has a more involved social media presence than the average non-preprint author in the oh, sense that's super of, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there was also a great session on um, post-publication review. So commenting. Mm, so Melissa Vaught mm-hmm. uh, presented great work on uh, PubMed Commons and sort of the nature of the comments there and. There's also work presented on PubPeer, so this anonymous commenting site. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, um, as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, you know, there's, I think we're not yet reaching the full potential of what kind of commentary could be um, available. But, yeah, to me, I think there's so much more to be learned in, in that area. And how, how can we encourage more meaningful commentary? So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully a topic for more peer review congresses in, in the future. So. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about this. Where I'm going to circle us all the way back to early career researchers. You know, I'm constantly reading new and innovative ideas from the travel award grants, the blog posts. I mean, you definitely said just earlier about how ECRs are often early adopters and enthusiasts about these new innovations. So what are your top three pieces of advice for ECRs that have a vision that kind of challenges the existing status quo around research? Like, how do they really get their ideas out there? Um, What are your tips for challenging the scientific enterprise? And Well, um, (laughs) that's a great question. So I think probably the most helpful thing is um, one to kind of read about and enter into this discussion that I think is happening largely on Twitter, on blogs, mm-hmm. but really kind of like learn about what other people are saying, what people are thinking. And I think breaking the barrier of being vocal is probably the most difficult thing. Leaving mm-hmm. a comment on a blog or tweeting is really kind of like the first step to, I think, writing your own you know blog posts and articles. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, I know that reporters are identifying early career researchers with opinions on Twitter mm-hmm. and contacting them. So I think that can become a, a platform. I mean, really, I think it's being, um, you know, unafraid to kind of develop some comfort with speaking out in a way that I think we don't normally as as early career researchers in our normal lives. Um, a lot of these issues are not really, they may come up at the water cooler, um, but we don't necessarily have a lot of formal opportunities to make opinions known in the real world. And so for that reason, I think those online conversations are really important. Another thing that that early career researchers can do to become more involved is to get in contact with an organization that I'm involved with, Future of Research. So, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, in 2014, myself and uh, some other early career researchers, we put on a a physical meeting to really talk about these issues of what are the incentives that are driving us to do, you know, partake in certain behaviors, the the workforce structure, the training structure, our funding system. And really kind of talk about um, early career researchers are very underrepresented in these kind of discussions about science, the the, the way that the science enterprise is constructed. And so Mm -hmm. we wanted to kind of organize a bit and and, um, try to amplify our voice in in conversation with one another. So since that time, there have been several uh, symposia. We formed a nonprofit. We have an amazing executive director, Gary McDowell, and he's in San Francisco. Um, and he, uh, w- one thing that we're doing is um, kind of 
getting in contact with other groups of Ehrlichur researchers locally who are interested in organizing their own meetings. And so we would love for interested Ehrlichur researchers to kind of get in touch with us. Our website is futureofresearch.org. And um, I think that that is, uh, we're working on initiatives to kind of make information more transparently available um, that will help researchers make good decisions about their own careers. And, and I think that that is uh, an initiative that we would love to have some more hands on as well. So Awesome. Yeah. And I would just add to that, we have the early career researcher community at PLUS that would love to be involved. We'll have to exchange contact oh, yeah. information Definitely. and integrate more, especially they're at UCSF. Oh, yeah, so he's actually at Many Labs, which is this amazing open science space um, in the the city. But, yeah. um, I think San Francisco's eight square miles, like, laterally. So we're definitely (laughs) going to have to get some face time. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I think that would be great. So um, that's absolutely something that I work on at Plus all the time. So, wow, brainwave, hive mind. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So... As we close out here, in addition to all your work with ASAP Bio, the future of research, you are actually producing science. And I'm wondering how do you how do you sleep? Like how do what do you how do you find well, time to live? Well, so I've been working full time on ASAP Bio for the last year. So mm-hmm. yeah, we do have some recent manuscripts that are kind of coming out, but this, mm-hmm. these are things that I've been really writing up with co-authors and, and colleagues and collaborators uh, since since that time. It's been very energizing to kind of devote myself more fully to things that used to be really my hobby while I was an active postdoc. Right. Yeah. So um, it's a it's a huge privilege to be able to do that, and I think being able to work towards some future that is a little bit more open and a, a little bit more efficient and collaborative, and maybe to to help uh, try to move science in <laughs> in a better direction is a is a huge honor. So. Wonderful. Thank you. So how can listeners contact you? If they are new to Twitter, maybe they want to send their first tweet to you. What do they do? How can they reach you? You can tweet at me, at Jessica Polka. We also have an account for ASAP Bio. It's ASAP Bio with an underscore after it. But most of the discussion around ASAP Bio happens on the ASAP Bio hashtag, just Mm -hmm. hashtag ASAP Bio. Other than that, you can also email me, jessica.polka at asapbio.org. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much, Jessica, for coming out. And follow us at Plus on Twitter. Elizabeth will be back when she returns from the Peer Review Congress. So thanks again. And enjoy some open drinks on us here at Plus. Did you enjoy our show? Rate and subscribe to us on iTunes. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Plus, P-L-O-S. This podcast is brought to you by Plus a nonprofit open access science publisher based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Special thanks to everyone who helped make this episode possible, including Elizabeth Seaver, Jessica Polka, and our producers and editors, Tessa Gregory, Shane Alsup, Maylene Bedard, and Jen LaLoupe. Thanks for listening.